You know, uh, some people have come to the Bible and they've said, what does this old book have to do with me? Uh, to which I would say, everything. Because as you dig into the Word of God, you begin to discover the gospel. You begin to discover the good news of hope. And, and you also see that history repeats itself. And you see um, that what we are experiencing today often has been experienced before. And the questions that we ask have most likely been asked before in one form or another. But it takes some digging, it takes some study, it takes some work on our part to understand, but that work is well worth it. And so this morning, uh, we're going to begin a series in the book of uh, Colossians. And we're going to continue that through the summer. It may get interrupted from time to time, but we're going to continue to work our way through Colossians. It's a, a prison letter from the Apostle Paul to the people of Colossae, uh, a little town in what today we call Turkey. And um, this is actually a church that Paul did not plant. He'd never been to Colossae, um, but he knew a man and had met a man named Epaphras who did. And he, Epaphras probably heard the gospel from Paul. And so Epaphras went to visit Paul in prison, and he gave him a full report about the church in Colossae, which was growing right in the midst of the Roman Empire. And and I really believe that um, if you and I understand Rome better, then we're going to understand the book of Colossians better, and it's going to have applications for our life. And so let me give you this morning just a little bit of background Uh, on Rome before we read this first part of Colossians. Um, Rome was an empire like none other. Um, And you and I, we tend to think that the U.S. is pretty prominent in our world because we've been around for almost 243 years, right? But the Roman Empire ruled the world for 1,500 years. And it was enormous, And Rome transformed the world with its law, with its order, and its roads. The the Romans built around 50,000 miles of roads leading to Rome. And so you have probably heard that expression that all roads lead to Rome. And and yes, 50,000 miles of road. And some of those roads are still used today. And so they were built to last. But as a result of all of these roads, the world shrank. Uh, People were able to travel like never before. And the gospel went out all over the world. And so Rome became a place where different cultures or ideas collided. It was uh, a type of boiling pot or a melting pot of people and information. And so the Roman roads in that day did what the Internet has done in our day, And that is, they shrank the world. And the Roman Empire had a couple of problems that the Apostle Paul is going to address in this book. First of all, Paul wants his readers to know that their hope is not in Rome. Uh, He's going to remind the Colossians that their hope is in God and the gospel, and not this great Roman Empire. And then secondly, because the world of the Colossians was filled with many cultures, many religious beliefs, Paul wanted to address this syncretism or this mixture of beliefs because the gospel or the good news was getting compromised by false teachings or beliefs. 
In other words, the Christians in Colossae and in the Roman Empire, they were saying, you know, Jesus is the one I believe in, but you know, I have a neighbor who's a Jewish mystic, and I, I really admire the way he prays, and so I'm going to incorporate some of his beliefs. Or maybe they would say, you know, Jesus is still my main man, but I have a neighbor who's Druid, and, and I'm not sure about all of his beliefs, but you know what? He really loves his family. I think I can borrow some things from his perspective. So because of the different cultures and the different belief systems of people who are living side by side, the gospel is getting compromised. Anyone see that happening in our day? Yeah. Is the Bible not relevant to our situation today? So why not see how Paul addresses these things in his day so that we can address them correctly in our day. So that's a little bit of background as we begin the book of Colossians. And into that context, Paul reminds them, and he reminds us this morning of our hope. What kind of hope do we have as we begin this morning the book of Colossians? Uh, Chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So, a fairly standard greeting here to start the letter, and then a description of thanks. And so let's look at verse 3 again. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So, we always thank who? God, right. The thanks does not go to the people of Colossae for their good works. It goes to God. He's the author of all good things, and so credit must go to Him because He's the one who makes it grow, just like in our church. It's our job to be faithful, but it's God that makes it grow. So we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you because of what? Verse 4. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. As you read through the New Testament, there's an inseparable link between trusting or having faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving his body of believers. Faith in God and love for the saints go together. And so this idea of having a private faith somewhere on your own is an unbiblical idea. And and I believe it was Augustine who once said, No man can have God as his father and not have the church as its mother. 
So faith in God and love for the church goes together. We see that here and we see that in many other places. And so this morning I want to ask you in your life, how strong is your faith? And then with that, how strong is your love for other believers? Has it grown weaker? Could that be true? And more importantly, what is it that will help you and I to grow stronger in our faith and in our love? What would motivate us to do that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 5, and this is what I want to focus in on this morning, really verses 5 and 6, he says, The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. So, what is driving the faith and the love? What do you see there? What drives or motivates our faith and love? Hope. Yes, thank you. So, faith, hope, and love. I think we've heard about this before, right? First Corinthians. These are characteristics of every Christian. Faith, hope, and love. And, and if you think about these three... They're all intertwined or interconnected. Uh, as Charles Spurgeon has said, there would be no love to the saints if there were not faith in Christ Jesus. And if there were not faith in Christ Jesus, there would be no hope laid up in heaven. He said, if we had no love, it would be certain that we had no true faith. And if we had no hope, faith would assuredly be absent. And so he says, if we entertain one of the graces, we must receive her sisters, for they cannot be separated. Here are three brilliants set in the same golden setting, and none must break the precious jewel. So faith, hope, and love go together. And then in verse 5, Paul tells us that our faith and love spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. So, uh, for you and I this morning, if your faith or your love has grown weak, perhaps it's because you've misplaced your hope. So let's find it again. Let's reclaim it. Let's remind ourselves of what kind of hope that we have. And very briefly this morning, I want us to remember that we have an incredible hope, we have a certain hope, and we have a hope that's fruitful. First of all, we have an incredible hope. Some of you, like myself, have grown up in the church. And perhaps we've forgotten about the treasure that we've received. Because we've gotten so used to it that we rarely think about it or value it. And so it's kind of like a person who's won the lottery and they don't react or even change their facial expression. Let's remember the treasure of the gospel that we've received. Let's let's, let's think about this again. Because without this gift of Jesus Christ, where would we be? We would be headed for an eternity in hell. And, And though you and I are sinners, we had no hope of life. We were given this gift of life in heaven. And so because we've received that gift, and if you've received that gift, you have no fear of hell, but you're also promised the joys of heaven. 
to remember that there was this gap between us and God. It couldn't be crossed because of our sin. And Jesus provides a way for us to come to God, to be in right relationship with God. And I know that that many of you have heard these things time and time again, because like me, you've been in church. But don't become used to that to the point where you you don't value the treasure or you, you lose your awe or your wonder for the gift that we've been given. Don't lose that wonder. God has made a way for someone like you and I, unclean, unrighteous, unworthy to have life, to have hope that one day we will walk the halls with the king. That one day we will see the king face to face. Incredible. And, and I don't think I can even begin to describe heaven to you. But let me, let me struggle to try, okay? Someday we're going to be perfect. We're going to have perfect bodies. We're not going to have any desire to sin. We're going to have victory over evil. We'll have security and peace and rest and enjoyment. We will no longer have doubts. We'll no longer have difficulties. No fears. No spiritual enemy will come against us. This is our incredible hope. I don't think we have any idea how great this hope is. I'm not sure I have any idea of it. A paradise of pleasure and glory where we will still work, but it will no longer be by the sweat of our brow. If you can imagine, no weary limbs, no tired heads, no tear or sorrow or pain, and perfect fellowship for all those who believe in Jesus. No need even for light, because we will be sitting at the feet of the light of the world. Who can fathom and even try to explain the incredible hope that we have in Christ Jesus? It's amazing. And one of the problems I think we need to overcome is that as we think about this hope or we try to capture this hope, we often consider it to be a future hope. And it is, as Paul says, the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. But if you study this text and you study others, this hope is not only future, but it's present. Paul writes about the present hope of a believer and the object of that hope as being the same thing. In other words, we, re, we will realize that this hope fully in heaven is, is, we're going to realize that when we get to heaven in its fullness, but we already possess it right now. And so as you think about that, this is different than other kinds of hope. For example, you may hope to be a wealthy person, but that's different than actually being a wealthy person. Paul writes about the hope that we've received in the gospel and the hope in heaven as being the same thing. Many hope to live a long time, but not everyone does. But Paul says our hope in Christ is very different. And so if we've received the gospel, we will receive what is promised. We can count on that. So we not only have an incredible hope, we have a certain hope. Most people in life do not have a certain hope. And if I asked you or you asked others, what is your hope in? 
Many people would say that they were hoping to go to heaven because they were a good person. To which I would say, compared to what? Are, are you comparing yourself to God's standard for you, or are you comparing yourself to a neighbor down the street? And many, if they were honest, would have to admit that they were banking their hope for eternity on a comparison with their neighbor. And so my friends here this morning, please don't put your hope in your own goodness. I I love you enough to tell you, you're not good enough. That's what the Bible says. These are not my words, okay? Don't, Don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You're not good enough. And God does not compare us to our neighbors. The scary part of the Bible is not that God judges our wickedness, but Isaiah says that our goodness is like filthy rags. And so please, don't put your hope in your own goodness, because that is not a certain hope. For many of you, the grandest hope is to live long and to die in your sleep. And I'm not saying that it's bad to hope for that, But as your friend, I need to tell you that that hope is not a certain hope. All of us die, and we die at different ages, different times in our life. And I'm encouraging you this morning to get a hope that is certain and eternal. Some of you may be putting your hope into gaining a satisfying life, trying to get all you can out of life. And And Solomon comes along, the author of Ecclesiastes, and he wants to save you some time and energy because Solomon tried everything, and he gained everything in the world in terms of wealth or power or women or business. Solomon had it all, and he tells us that it was all meaningless. And so, friends, don't put your hope in the stuff of this world because we are made for a hope that is eternal and certain. And so think about this morning, what is it that I put my hope in? What do you put your hope in? We all have hopes. Hopes for our careers, hopes for our family, hopes for a comfortable life, hopes to see the world. And some have achieved their hopes. Most of us continue to strive towards them. Others, sadly, have given up on hope. We have these hopes for our lives, but what do we hope for when faced with death? Hopes that we will have more time. Hopes that it will be all right in the end. Hopes to be in heaven. Hope that there is no hell. Job was a man who had accumulated all that the world can offer, family, property, money, and status. However, in the space of just a few days, he had lost it all. Listen to what Job says about hope and about those who hope in themselves or their possessions. His confidence shall be cut off. His trust is a spider's web. And he leans on his house, but it does not stand. Job had no hope in himself or in his possessions. Job's hope was in his God alone, and Job's life was a living testimony to the truth of his words. Without this absolute trust in God, even the best of people 
have only an empty hope. But the righteous have hope in his death, hope of eternal life. For we are saved by hope, the hope of the gospel. And what a great hope this is. Do you have such a hope? As John White once said, the world hopes for the best, but Jesus Christ offers the best hope. Though we all have hopes, ultimately, without Jesus, we have no hope. Because God has created us for a hope that is eternal and certain. Verse 5 says, The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth. So these are not guesses or hopes about God. They are grounded in the truth. So our hope is certain. It's secure. Laid up in heaven for you where no man or moth can destroy it. The Word of God promises it, and as Isaiah 48 says, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. We have a certain hope. And finally this morning, we have a hope that is fruitful. Middle of verse 6. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. There's that word fruit again. I keep stumbling upon that, it seems, uh, that the good news of the gospel is meant to bear fruit. And our hope in the gospel is, is not only in the local church, but it's universal. Um, It's not confined to a special group or nation, but it's open and it's transferable to all men, and it is fruitful. In other words, this gospel that we're given is meant and and made to spread. Now, in, in our country, some of us are currently grieving the decline of Christianity in the West. But we need to know at the same time that the gospel is exploding in other parts of the world. It's, it's exploding. It can't be contained or stamped out because it's fruitful. And we know from history that the gospel has transformed lives and cultures for centuries. Now, Paul doesn't have the same historical perspective that we do, but he has confidence in the gospel as he writes to a country town in the midst of the Roman Empire to assure them that the gospel is indeed bearing fruit all over the world. And it still is in our day. And so the application for us from the passage this morning, I believe is very clear. But just in case that you missed it, ask yourself, where have I put my hope? What is my hope in? Colossians tells us that if we truly put our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we will have faith in God and we'll show love to our fellow believers. And so right now, if we're struggling with faith or love, it might be that we have misplaced our hope. That we've put our hope in something, and it could be a very good thing, that is neither certain or eternal. 
And so to hear the word this morning that God is calling us once again to find our hope ultimately in Him alone. A hope that, that we need God's power to have because it's so incredible, it's so certain, and it's so fruitful in our lives and in our churches.